Hello and welcome to A Bookish Home. I'm your host, librarian and writer, Laura Zaro-Kopinski, and today my guest is Henriette Lazaridis, author of the new novel, Terra Nova, a haunting story of love, art, and betrayal set against the heart-pounding backdrop of Antarctic exploration. Henriette is also a fantastic writing teacher through Grub Street in Boston, where I've been lucky enough to get to learn from her. Um, Terra Nova is receiving rave reviews, including B.A. Shapiro, who says, from Viola willing to risk all for women's suffrage to her husband traveling with her secret lover who risks all to be the first to reach the South Pole. This novel is an intelligent literary page turner of the best type. A little more about Henriette. She's the author of The Clover House, which was a Boston Globe bestseller. Her short, short work has appeared in Elle, The New York Times, New England Review, The Millions, and more. And she's earned a Massachusetts Cultural Council Artists Grant. She's a graduate of Middlebury College, Oxford University, where she was a Rhodes Scholar, and the University of Pennsylvania. Having taught English at Harvard, she now teaches at Grub Street. She founded the Drum Literary Magazine and currently runs the Crudo Writing Workshop in Northern Greece. She writes the Substack newsletter, The Entropy Hotel, at HenrietteLazaridisSubstack.com. For more, visit HenrietteLazaridis.com. Henriette, thank you so much for coming on, and congratulations on Terra Nova. Thank you so much, Laura. It's really fun to have this time to have a conversation. Yes, I um, was just so entranced um, and fascinated. The whole kind of juxtaposition of the um, Arctic exploration sort of with the um, peak of women's suffrage in uh, the UK, I just thought was so interesting. And um, this is airing a bit later, but we happen to be speaking on election day here in the US. And so women's suffrage is always on my mind on those days. So yeah, I just think it'll it'll be really fun to get to, to dive in. Well, I would love to kind of hear first about kind of what drew you to this topic and sort of and sort of both topics really. Yeah, well, I... I had been I have been fascinated with Robert Falcon Scott, the Antarctic explorer, since I was seven years old. I know this because I looked it up. There was a documentary that aired on PBS when I was seven, and oh, wow. my parents must have been you know sat me down or or I joined them and we watched this thing, and I was very fascinated by this adventure to be first to the South Pole, and I think the documentary pretty much was a pro Scott documentary. So I came away from this with, yeah, yeah, yeah. Scott died on the way home and he was beaten by Roald Amundsen, but Scott was my hero, not Amundsen. But as I got older, I really kept thinking about this fact of his being second to the pole. And I would just kept being fascinated by this idea that what must that have felt like to be second, to go all that way and suffer so much and like reach your goal because you're there in, <laughs> at the South yeah. Pole. But you see some other guy's flag there and you know that you've lost. Um, and I began to really think about, well, what would it be like if you were not a noble person? And what would it be like if you knew that the other people had died? And it was only going to be your word as to whether you had been first or not. And so I just thought about it on and off for years and years and years, and then finally just started writing. Um, and I did think, okay, it can't just be this story of these two guys. 
I, I have to add a third. There has to be a triangle. And I decided, I just sort of realized that I needed to have the sort of the Penelope figure. If this is an odyssey, I wanted to think about a, the woman at home who was not going to be undoing her tapestry, which is, you know, what Penelope, she's like, yeah, when I'm finished with my tapestry, I'll marry one of you suitors. And she keeps undoing the tapestry every night. So she's never done. Um, and so that's crafty and smart. But I wanted to see what would happen if I created a, a Penelope analog at home who wasn't undoing her art, who was finding a way to be defiant while also pursuing her art. And so it took me a long time to figure out who this Viola person was. Um, and I had all kinds of false starts and material that's just gone and tossed and in my, you know, archives somewhere. And it's funny to me that I look at my early notes because I write longhand and I have all these notebooks where I keep the notes and the text. Um, and you can see there's a place where I think like, oh, suffrage, 1910. Should I do that? And then there's like, I actually say in my notes, like that would be too on the nose. <laughs> and finally I came back to it like years later. It's like, no, no, you have to do this. It has to be about women's suffrage as a political act as a political event that's affecting her art and her art hopefully she hopes to do something about women's suffrage with her art um but it had to be in the story um while these men are in antarctica so that's sort of how i came to put those two together yeah i just thought that was fascinating and i never would have like paired those topics in my mind but then once you start reading about it even just thinking about um, the women that Viola kind of comes in contact with who really are um, like risking their bodies and putting their bodies sort of yeah. to the limit, um, you know, to try to achieve women's suffrage, pairing that with, um, you know, Watts and Haywood kind of pushing their bodies to the limit in a, in a different way. I just thought that was so interesting. And I would love to hear, I'm always kind of, fascinated in the research, um, kind of what sticks out to you, I guess, first in terms of kind of what was going on with the suffrage movement in England at the time and kind of how you went about researching that? Yeah, well, I did. I, don't, I, I did a lot of it just following rabbit holes online where I could find, you know, starting with Wikipedia, but then going to whatever primary sources I could find online. And then a couple of books about, um, well, this one Lady Constance Lytton, L-Y-T-T-O-N, um, was a hunger striker who um, wrote a journal of her time in Holloway Prison. Um, so I read that, and that was very interesting, and sort of new, trying to find newspaper accounts, because you can find all this stuff online. It's pretty pretty amazing what's out there. And the images, posters, um pamphlets. There's a lot of it out there. And I will say, I'm the kind of person who I do the research, I get the stuff I need, and then a lot of it just goes right out of my head. So if you were to ask me now to tell you important salient facts about suffrage, most of them would be gone from my mind. <laughs> <laughs> but what's what struck me was I didn't know about the hunger strikers. I didn't know about the force feeding of the hunger strikers, which was such a horrible thing. 
um, and such an important part of the suffrage movement. I also, I didn't know there was something called the Artist Suffrage League. And these were, as the name suggests, this group of artists in Chelsea, just off of um, King's Road, who would get together and they would paint signs and banners and things like that. And some of them would do a little more avant-garde kinds of things besides besides that. But this was sort of a, an alliance of artists who were trying to promote the cause. Um, and so th- those are some of the things that I looked into. And it was interesting to me thinking about like when you read the journals of Antarctic explorers, which I actually tried not to do at all once I began writing the book because I didn't want to be influenced. But I needed to check certain things like, well, how much fuel would they have had? How much food would they have needed? And they're thinking very much about how many calories do we need? How, how can we ration out our portions? So it really does become this struggle for you're trying to do something physical and you're also needing to deprive yourself in order to achieve your goal. And there's a very male sort of traditionally, you know, gendered male way of adventuring that the men were able to do that women very few women were able to do that kind of physical exploration i mean in antarctica none at that point um in the alps and things like that there were plenty of women mountaineers i mean plenty a a fraction of how many men there were but then you have the hunger strikers who of course they're they're dealing with deprivation of calories and the force feed that food becomes this weapon in the women's struggle in a way that it's not, not a weapon. It's a tool for the men. It it just, that struck me as very interesting that I wanted to sort of explore that with the fiction. Yeah. The way they, those kind of perspectives play off each other. So interesting. Was there a character that you sort of found the most difficult to write or to maybe get into their head? I do think it was Viola. She gave me a really hard time because I, I knew that I wanted to put her between these two men. I I was very interested in her as a person who said and believe she says this and she believes this to be true. She sort of says, why can I not love two people at once? She doesn't, yes, she's having an affair with Watts while being married to Haywood. And she's, she knows that it's a problem because she's not honest about it. She doesn't tell her husband. She's, she's debating whether when they come back from Antarctica, whether she, she has to tell him and be honest. And, but her belief is it should be possible to love two people at once. I knew that about her. And I thought that was sort of interesting, but I couldn't figure out what to do with her as an artist. I couldn't figure out what she wanted as an artist for a very long time. So it was hard for me to get into her head. Um, I think I finally did. I feel like I finally did. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we got to be in her head. So yes, definitely. Um, Are you someone then who kind of writes and sees where it takes you as you're getting to know your characters? Or did you, were you more of a a plotter kind of, kind of figuring this out in advance? Oh, how I wish I had been a plotter. Although that's really (laughs) not my, my nature. I really, um, I started writing the novel with the men and I had no idea where I was going. I just sat down 
And I, it was kind of easy because it was like, well, they're in Antarctica and they're going south. <laughs> and I would just write a little bit every day um, at like five in the morning. I was getting up in, De- it was December, it was dark out. I liked to write in the dark as much as I could. And I felt like I was trying to stay in that world with them. And I didn't really know where they were going, except physically I knew where they were going. And I knew that when they got to the pole, I knew what they were going to do when they got to the pole. Um, so that part was just sort of, just keep moving, just keep moving, just keep moving. <laughs> um, and then with Viola, I really, because I hadn't plotted out her story, um, I went significantly down paths that I ended up having to scrap. Um, so there are, there are, vast tracts of manuscript that that are gone that don't show up at all things you know alternate lifestyles for her that I created that I realized after I wrote you know 100 pages like nope that's not it um so I didn't I didn't plan I'm someone who I typically like to get underway and then know a little bit like the major milestones but not everything I've had trouble when if I know something too clearly I get bored with it I sort of think, mm. like, well, now why write it if I know exactly what's going to happen? I'm having that predicament right now with a novel that I think I've overplotted in my mind. And so I keep trying to find ways, like, come on, you got to find what's interesting to you. You have to find what what, um, what you're curious about. Um, so I don't know, that I'm, I'm kind of a planter. <laughs> I like that. <laughs> well, and... The class that I took with you was was very much focused on revision, and I'm curious with this book what that process would like for you was like for you. And I guess overall, um, like how long did this book take to write? What chunk of that was um, kind of revising? Uh, I kind of sort of what was the process like? Mm, the huh, it took a long time, and it had a sort of uh, up and down trajectory to get to publication. Um, I did, I think I want to say three rewrites of Viola, like really just blank page, start over again um, with her um, with, I would say three, three whole new iterations of her, but with the men's stuff, that was pretty much, uh, revise as you go. Um, I was going on purpose very, very slowly so that, I don't know, I didn't change too much of their narrative. Um, but I think I learned with this book uh, that you really need sometimes, maybe most times, that you really need to rewrite, that it's not enough unless you get really, really lucky. It's not going to be enough to just rearrange a word or a phrase here and there, um, that you have to be willing to look at your work as though it does not belong to you and critique it. Um, something which I think I'm, I'm, I'm able to do. I will do, you know, track changes on my own documents and I'll mark it up as though it's, it's someone else's work. Um, and I do notes and comments to myself. Um, but then you have to really be willing to, to jump, you know, to, to go into the blank page and start over. Uh, and maybe you'll cut and paste something and, 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 and cop, sorry, copy paste something from the old document into the new. But I think it needs to be a really um, wholesale re-seeing and rewriting of the manuscript. Unless you are, as I said, unless you're incredibly lucky and you just, 
the stars align and you go exactly where you want it to go from the, from the get go. And are you at this point, I know you said you write longhand. Are you revising sort of the fully typed up version or are you kind of um, recopying? What's, what's, what's that like? I generally, I am, I'm in a real mess right now because I have versions and documents and stuff that I'm trying (laughs) to kind of collate together. And the one thing that you can rely on as long as it doesn't, you know, catch fire is the, the, the notebook where you wrote stuff down longhand. I, I tend to, if I'm, you mean, if I'm revising, how, yeah, yeah. If I'm revising, I will do a combination of starting on the, notebook page, writing longhand again, because that's the safest way to be free of the language that you used before, because that language is on the computer and on this, on your page, there's nothing. <laughs> um, yep. So I'll do a combination of like start over on paper, and then I type it up into the computer as a way of backing it up. Um, and then I will sometimes type a little bit more, you know, once, once it's up there on the in, in Scrivener or, and I'm now trying, trying out dabble. <laughs> um, oh, I haven't heard of that. I've, yeah, I've, I was looking around I'm playing with Scrivener, I, but yeah, I'm, I was looking for something else because I had some backup problems. Um, mm. So, but in any case, like taking, taking the document, typing it up onto the computer. And then once it's there, moving it around, making comments, maybe adding another paragraph that I type straight up. It's a bit of a collage. Once I get to that stage. Your uh, daughter is also a novelist, which sounds um, very fun. Is she someone who you um, then send pages to or who are kind of your trusted writers that um, that you get feedback from? It's funny that my I think only once did my daughter and I exchange pages and it was a few months ago Uh, and she she has read more of my stuff than I have of hers. I she'll, she'll give me her stuff when it's like done, when the editor mm. has said you are now done. Um, <laughs> I guess um, that could be fraught mother daughter. Yeah. Editing. Yeah. But I do like to say that I learned everything I know from her because we have these conversations where I sort of run stuff by her and she'll, she'll ask really smart questions about, and she would, I still have notes somewhere where for this Viola thing, she would say, yes, mom, but what does she do? And I would talk about, well, this character, and she loves two men and she said yes but what does she do and what does she want um but she and she asks more specific questions than that but i have been lucky to have in here in the boston writing community there are so many wonderful writers who i form little groups with two or three at a time we exchange pages and so um there's sort of out of out of all the people that i know i'd say there's like five people that that see my work. I'm, I'm someone who I don't mind sharing work when it's underway. I know others prefer to wait until it's they, other people prefer to keep it closer to their, to their vest. Um, and I, I may be an oversharer, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but I, I don't mind at all. And I, I find that it's usually quite helpful to me um, because I'm not easily going to be derailed. So I, I trust that if someone says something that I know is just like not what I'm interested in, I can just say, okay, yep, yeah, thanks. And in my mind, I'm saying, not going to do that. <laughs> yep. So, 
Yeah. Well, I'll give a plug for Grub Street too, because um, I know I found it helpful um, connecting with people in, in the classes and I've been exchanging pages with someone from, from your class that I took. And um, oh, yeah. it's just like really helpful way to kind of find those people. Well, I was so curious kind of looking at different interviews you've done and things, kind of your journey to um, starting to write novels. And I didn't realize that you had been a James Joyce scholar. I would love to hear oh, a little bit about that and kind of your your journey toward um, what you're doing now. Yeah, in my other life, a long, long time ago for <laughs> for really in the grand scheme of things, a fairly short period of time. It felt like eons at the time, but it's really, it was what, 15 years. Um, I, that was my, Joyce was my kind of cottage industry. Um, and I, academia, that was my, that was my thing for a while. And I, but I had always planned to be a novelist like in college I, and, and in high school I would always say you know I'm gonna I'm gonna graduate from college and get a job in New York and write in the mornings and then you know just not make very much money and that'll be fine um, and then I ended up going to grad school and one thing led to another and I rebelled against my parents who were very supportive of their daughter the starving writer which was how they would introduce me um, I rebelled against them by by wanting to be an academic I was like screw that. You think I'm going to be an artist. I'm going to go be a PhD. Um, And and then at one point, I think I was like 10 years into teaching or maybe fewer. I was reading a novel by A.S. Byatt, not Possession. I had already read Possession. And I think that must have primed the pump because I was thinking, wait, this is like, these are, this is a novel about academics, but it's a novel and they're doing really interesting things. And, but I was reading another one of hers and I remember the exact moment I sat in the chair and there was something about that book that struck me. And I said, Oh my God, I was supposed to be a novelist. What happened? Ah. And, and I started slowly edging out of academia and, and uh, spending more time writing fiction, which I was able to do and spent some time being the stay at home mom and writing during the day when my kids were uh, at school. Um, And, and, then, you know, took me a while to take myself seriously. I kept hedging my bets. I kept undermining myself. And that was, that was done out of fear. I was going to say chicken, but that sounds too judgmental, but it was motivated by fear the way I would sort of undermine myself. Like, oh, you know, if you don't go into something full on, then it's okay if you fail because you didn't commit your whole self, but that's not how to do it. (laughs) If you want to have a chance at succeeding, you know, you have to put your whole, it's like the hokey pokey. you got to put your whole self in. Um, you can't just put your, your one foot in and shake it all around. Um, was some of that kind of letting go of like keeping a foot in academia, like, um, letting go of that identity and like jumping into writing or was it like more that, um, like putting all your time into writing, I guess. Kind of both, but I think it was like when you, when you're in academia or really most other jobs, but especially academia, you, there's an kind of instant gratification. You know, you write a paper, you hear back, it's accepted or not. I mean, it's pretty, it's still, it's not as slow as publishing, you know, the academic world, but it's not speedy, but it's not as slow as publishing. And, you know, when you're a student, you know, you hand in a paper, you get a grade. It's, it's very tangible in a weird way. And um, that was comforting. And so I didn't want to leave that world of, I know where I stand. 
And I actually, yeah. I know I'm good at this and I, and I'm, I know the, the measure of my worth and I can see it and I can in a way kind of control it. And then here's publishing where even if you feel confident that you're good at it, you really don't know. And it, as we know now, you know, it takes forever to hear back from various gatekeepers at various levels and that can feel very amorphous. And so it's scary. And I didn't want to enter into that. Um, so I still, you know, wouldn't it be nice if we didn't have to, but. <laughs> um, well, it's a gamble, right? Like you can spend, you know, all this time and all this effort and, and, you know, not necessarily reach that goal of getting published or whatever it may be, or yeah, the more yeah. straightforward job, you sort of know, all right, I'm putting this effort in and I'm getting this out. And, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And I used, yeah. I used to use, I mean, for me, it was sports that was my, my chief mode of um, self-sabotage because I would do when you mentioned time and spending the time on that gamble as you say um, if I spent more time like training because I'm a rower and, and, and a runner but at the time I was really almost exclusively rowing and when you put more time into that you can say oh well <laughs> you know it, for on the one hand the more I train, the faster I get. So that's tangible. And isn't this rewarding? And, and that mm. becomes the thing you keep going for because the reward is very clear and controllable. And at the same time, you can say, oh, well, you know, I'd be more successful as a writer if I spent more time on it. But like, hey, look, I have these other things that are in my life. And it becomes this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy of you're never going to really push yourself to your full potential as a writer if you keep not doing the writing. Um, As I say, you know, when you said it's a gamble and you never know, that's why I always say to myself and to students that if you don't enjoy, that you need to enjoy the process, the experience of writing in itself, because that might be the only reward you get. We hope it's not Mm -hmm. the only reward you get, but it's the only reward you can control. So you have to like doing it no matter what. Um, So then no matter what happens, whether you are successful or not, you can define your own success and say, my success is that I enjoy solving problems with words in a a made up way. And if I'm doing that and I'm enjoying that, then I'm good. That's so, that's so interesting. It's like, we all need therapy as as writers. (laughs) um, Just like a mental shift like that, I think could be helpful. Like Hmm. just... Yeah, focusing on what you can control and enjoying the process. And if you think too much about the gamble, you kind of talk yourself out of it. So yeah, um, yeah, yeah. The other thing I wanted to hear about is the writing workshop that you run in Greece, because that sounds kind of amazing. And I'd love to hear how you how you started that and and just what it's like. Yeah, well, I'm very lucky that my ancestors came from a village in the northern part of Greece that is spectacularly beautiful. And actually, if you say anyone in Greece, if you say Papingo, they're all like, oh, Papingo. <laughs> it's really, really spectacularly beautiful. Um, and I'm the fifth generation to sort of be responsible for this family home. But as a kid growing up, when I was in my mind, you know, going to be a writer, I always thought that it was such a beautiful place to be creative in. I mean, we used to, we hiked and did all sorts of outdoorsy things there, but, 
but I also found it to be so inspirational that I thought, wouldn't it be nice sometime to bring other writers here to this village in Bapingo and create something creative? <laughs> um, yeah. And finally, a few years ago, a couple years before the pandemic, I got it up and running with the first small group of people who came. You know, it's not, it's not, I think people feel a little more skittish might be too strong a word, but a little more tentative about going to this part of Greece than say if it were on an island where they say, oh, you know, I've heard of Mykonos or I've heard of Baros um, or say going to say Tuscany for a writing workshop. So it's a little more off the beaten path. So it takes a little more of an adventurous person to say, yeah, I'll fly to Athens and then I'll get on another hour long flight. And then I'll have Henriette drive me an hour up <laughs> hairpin turns to this village at the end of the road, surrounded by cliffs that are 3000 feet high. Um, or, yeah. Uh, yeah. Just under 3000 feet above the village. Um, but it's, so it's, but it's worked out, worked out really well with small groups and we sit, under the 150 year old apple tree in my family house's courtyard. And we have workshops there. And then people have the afternoon of free time, or I say, I have office hours if you want to come by and show me some more pages, but people have free time and they go write some more and we reconvene in the evening and we have craft talks. And uh, this past summer we had a group that was somehow, they were incredibly generative. They, they were working so hard and we were also having such a good time, but we also did things like, okay, meet at three and we'll go for an hour long uh, hike or two hour hike. And then you'll come back and you'll write more pages. They were amazing. That's so, <laughs> so lovely. I, I just, oh, that sounds magical. <laughs> yeah. It, it's, I think it's wonderful. I'm really happy to be able to share it, even if it's with, you know, four or five people at a time. So. Yeah. Just a couple of last questions. Are you able to share anything about kind of your next project? No, because I have this book that I've been sort of setting aside for, for other work over the last few years. And I'm, you know, working on it again. And it is my sort of, I would say my current project. It's um, a book about um, based on or inspired by, I should say a cold case from the town I grew up in a woman who disappeared and still hasn't been found. Um, but so it's a it's a novel about a young physicist in 1972 who is um, working on fusion uh, and also eagerly, desperately hoping that her mother will reappear um, from having disappeared. And there's a a narrative that takes place in the 40s when the mother um, is part of the Manhattan Project. Um, oh, that sounds great. Yeah, I look forward to that. I can always write the damn thing. (laughs) (laughs) I know, right? (laughs) Well, just lastly, I always love to hear what authors um, are reading. And are there any books you'd want to recommend to listeners? Well, I feel like this is not an unusual thing to say, but I am in the middle now of Kate Atkinson's Shrines of Gaiety. And anyone who has spoken to me in the last five days knows that it's the only thing I can talk about. Because her narrative voice is so bonkers, amazing and unusual, as it always is. So I'm a huge Kate Atkinson fan. And I I think that this last one just is wonderful in all the ways that all her work is wonderful. Um, But I also, I know that Lynn Griffin's um, Dark Rivers to Cross comes out 
today as we're speaking today, yeah, today. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm really looking forward to reading that because I've read I think all of Lynn's work and and especially I really like these um mystery ones that I mean this is going to be her second one and I'm really looking forward to reading that Yes, that's next on my reading list. She's going to be coming on um, the podcast, and I'm I'm really excited to start that one. It looks great. Oh, that's great. Um, yeah, me too. Me too. Yeah, we're so lucky in in this area to have so many um, wonderful authors. So it's fun to get to read local a little bit too. Yeah. Um, well, I hope that um, listeners go pick up Terra Nova at their local bookstore, um, put your holds in at the library. Um, yes, yes. And yeah, and I'm just um, so thankful we got to chat more about it. So um, thanks for taking the time to come on. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me to come on. This is really lovely. And it's great to connect with you again after our, the class ended. So yes. And you know, what? I'll definitely link to um, Grub Street if people want to check out classes. I know for people that uh, aren't local to Boston or like can't get there. I know the class I did with you was on zoom and it was fabulous. So um, people should check out Grub Street and, and your classes in particular. Yeah. Um, well, thank you. Yeah. Um, well, thanks so much for, for chatting and uh, best of luck with the next project. Thanks so much, Laura. For links to all of the books mentioned on this week's episode, you can visit abookishhome.com. And there you'll also find a link to our new online bookshop. Um, a Bookish Home has teamed up with the new organization bookshop.org, which supports independent bookstores. And if you'd like, you can browse books by authors who have been guests on A Bookish Home. I'm also sharing there all of the books mentioned on the podcast, books I've been reading lately, and other recommendations. It's a really wonderful site to browse and look through books. And if you make a purchase, it supports a bookish home and independent bookstores. So it's a win-win. So if you want to check that out directly, it's bookshop.org slash shop slash a bookish home. And you'll also find that at abookishhome.com. If you are enjoying the show, I hope you take a minute to subscribe and also rate and review in iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you enjoyed this episode, I would encourage you to share it on social media to help other people find the show and this episode. Thanks for listening, everyone, and happy reading.